Welcome to Fried, the Burnout Podcast, Season 5. The goal of each Fried episode, whether you're an entrepreneur, parent, employee, or otherwise defined, is to create moments of spontaneous healing by ensuring that you feel seen, heard, connected to others, and validated. By doing this, Fried fulfills its mission to kill the shame, blame, and judgment associated with burning out, and Fried adds to its original goal of creating a movement to hashtag end burnout culture. Should you need a coach, Fried coaches are standing by to help guide you through recovery. Book a call anytime by visiting the links in the show notes. Should you need a speaker, you can hire me, Kate, and you can rest assured that your people will have fun and learn about burnout at the same time. In the meantime, I'm ready to give you this week's episode, which will help you heal just a little bit more, starting now. Hello, Fried fam. Here we are with another week of Fried, the burnout podcast. When this podcast started in July of 2019, I had no idea that we would end up where we are today. We are about to cross a quarter of a million downloads, which is wonderful and horrifying all at the same time. Wonderful because I'm so glad that I'm creating a resource that's helpful for people and horrifying because so many people need this resource. Right. You know, all of you know that my goal is to hashtag end burnout culture. And if that means that it shuts down the podcast and puts me out of a job, I am a okay with that. And today I have a guest who would likely say the same. Dr. Crystal Frazee is a burnout recovery and stress resilient coach with 16 years experience typing, helping type A career driven CEOs and execs shift from feeling squeezed to spacious, creator of the somatic attunement method. Recovered Southern Belle and problem solver to everyone, which just makes me laugh because yes to that. Mom to two little girls and dedicated to ending burnout culture by teaching women to get out of their heads and into their bodies. Amen. Dr. Crystal, welcome to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is going to be such a great conversation. It always is. There's something that like magic that happens in this space. You know, people write to me sometimes before the podcast and say, do you have questions prepared for me? And I say, no, no, I don't do it that way. I want to listen to you and let's find the things that are really going to resonate. Let's just organically let it happen. And so far that's been working. So we're going to do the same today. I'm going to give you space to tell your burnout story and we'll see what happens after that. Awesome. Go for it. All right. So, ah, it's always interesting because, you know, I think maybe listeners can relate like, where did it begin? Mm -hmm. Hmm, Right. There's so many layers to that. But I would start um, to share just when I started to notice in my body that something was amiss. Right. Um, I'm from the South and, you know, I'm I'm from a family of women, a lineage of at least four generations that I know that really just get shit done and show up, take care of whatever's needed um, for themselves, for the family, for their um, work environments, for the community, and more. And that sort of, you know, the the framing in my mind, what it meant to be a woman, and and what it meant to have a family, and what it meant to have a career. And so if we fast forward through um, graduate school and lots of postgraduate training and lots of um, pushing myself, I um, 
really started to notice that my ability to sense my own body had changed. I guess I should back up for just a second. So mm-hmm. I've been a yoga teacher and I'm a, a yoga therapist and I train other yoga teachers and I um, have this history, you know, 20 years of being in my body, understanding sensations, emotions and where they live, right? So I have this like literacy, which is a word I'd like to come back to later. And what I started to notice is that that was not really present, specifically when I was laying with my small children, which at the time were, you know, like one in almost four, I couldn't feel them. Like Mm -hmm. I couldn't feel like the connectedness with their body from my body, which I had always previously been able to feel. And that was kind of like a real big, like, wow, what is going on here? And, you know, just a little background story is that I was suddenly the breadwinner and I had my own chronic illness that I was managing two small children, um, which I was breastfeeding for many years. And um, it was just, it was just a lot. I was working um, full-time in my own coaching business. And at that time uh, to respond to those stressors, I decided to also get a full-time job going back into healthcare, back into the hospital. Um, And so that was, you know, I was front lines in COVID and it was just a lot. And it was feeling like I couldn't feel my body. I couldn't really feel my emotions. And it was just a really big wake up call. And so, yeah, I I had already been working in this realm. Um, It was already my specialty. And so I already had the tools to bring online and I already had a process and, and resources available. And so I'm really grateful for that. Um, and now I just really have this profound sense of how much can and should I push and when and what season of life, you know, it's not every season of life and when and how can I pause so that my body can restore and recover from, from those episodes. And, um, and really as I get older, um, for the listeners, I'm in my forties. And so like, as I've gotten older, that really profoundly has changed how much recovery, what type of recovery and those subtle messages my body gives me once, you know, I've reached enough recovery and then I can go back into, you know, one of those other phases where I have a lot on my plate. Yeah. So I want to go into two things here. One of them is this sense of disconnect because, you know, we talk about this, this has been mentioned a million times, or maybe I stopped saying it because I was sick of it, but the world health definition of burnout, right, is number, there's three components, all three must be present, physical and emotional exhaustion, cynicism and disconnect, and a lack of feeling impactful or a lack of productivity. And we almost always, myself included, focus on this emotional and physical exhaustion piece. But what you're saying right now is that that sense of disconnect was the thing that was most jarring for you. And this is interesting because I don't know that a lot of people would have known what that was because they hadn't spent the past 16 to 20 years prepping themselves and knowing their bodies enough to understand when they feel connected and when they don't. So I want to talk about that a little bit more for a moment, because I think that it's something that is not really touched upon enough. And there's some people that 
might've never really felt that and don't really know what you mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So I, I mean, I think that there's just a basic, um, well, there's, there's, there's two ways I would love to explain this one. Um, listeners don't get caught up in the terminology here. Just kind of hang with me for a second. But what I found is that most of the women who come to work with me, who are executives, physicians, entrepreneurs, there's a lot of pressure on their plates. They also have one or more homes, a lot of financial strain, you know, children, expanded families. They often come to me where I'm listening to their story. And, and for me, I'm thinking you've had complex trauma. You've, you've lived with complex PTSD, which, um, you know, isn't really the topic of this conversation, but for listeners, it doesn't mean you had like one big event. It could just be a stressful um, time in your childhood, for example, where your needs weren't being met or you were parentified and there were more responsibilities on you than you should have had. And I really feel myself included that that is a big piece, the foundation that leads us to be high achieving women. Mm. The whole thought of like, you can have it all, I think is, is like the current, you know, uh, message out there. Like as a woman, you could have it all. You can have the job and the family in the house, but the reality is you just can't do it all. And, you know, most of us, I always, you know, I always say this too, is that we lack role models. We haven't seen women who were quote unquote, doing it all well-resourced with lots of support, knowing their limits, knowing what their body was telling them. And so really, I think women in general, especially high achieving women have a lot of push. There's this lack of knowledge about where the threshold is about how much is enough? How much should I take on? How much should I expect of myself? What is realistic? It's really, really distorted. And that's a big piece I love about what you say so much is like burnout is not your fault. No, it's, it's cultural. It's, it is personal skills that may be lacking. And it's also workplace dynamics. But, you know, that cultural piece is so pervasive. And so you know, that just like that push, that push. So from early, early on, for me, for example, as somebody with CPTSD, I learned to disregard my own body's messages because I was seeking safety by taking care of everybody else. You know, and and it's, you know, whether it was a message of stress or fatigue or um, concern or worry or, or whatever that was, I wasn't focusing on that. I was focusing outward. And so I've already started with like a negative emotional literacy and and body literacy. Right. Um, and, and so when I say like, um, body literacy, what I really mean is that listeners, you have the ability to just take a breath and be present in your body right now and know what are the physical sensations in your body, you know, and some of that could be you know, hunger, fatigue, and such things, but also could be like a little area of tightness, a little area where your skin feels more cold, right? Like you could do a body scan, you could list off lots of physical sensations, and people are usually really good at pointing out pain. But also, you know, um, there's an emotional layer to your being. So what emotions are you feeling? which can be conflicting, you can be grieving, and you can be have gratitude at the same time, you know, 
Can you repeat that for a second? Because amen, this is something that irritates me to no end in the spiritual life coaching mm-hmm. world. Like if you have enough love, then you won't feel, if you have enough gratitude and love, you won't feel anger. Bitch, please. Mm, right, right. No, I've had a I lot of I can feel it all. <laughs> yes. I can Absolutely. feel all those things. I'm all a multitasking it. emotional being. Yes. And they all are in different places in your body. Yeah. Right. Gratitude can be there and anger can be there and resentment can be there and grieving can be there all at the same time. We are amazingly complex and we really just don't give space and permission for that. So the other thing I I blame on the culture is this coin, this term that I've coined, which is perfection paradox, because as a young girl, I'm just, you know, generally here, you know, we're expected to be quiet, pretty helpful, generous, selfless, and not complain, not whine for sure, you know. Um, and and then as we become grown women, there's still this, this sort of unknown, unconscious embedded message about what we can speak up about and how much we can tolerate and whether or not our feelings are valid, essentially. And every feeling we have emotionally is valid. It has, you know, so much importance. It's communicating a message to you and grief needs to be held and gratitude can be celebrated and, and anger needs, you know, space and, you know, all of that, instead of just shoving it down and putting it in, in, into the closet, never to be seen again, because there's no time or energy to deal with it, or usually a skill set. you know, we're lacking real skills in dealing with that. And I would go beyond lacking skills mm-hmm. it, it, it's one step below lacking skills first of all we don't have the skills and underneath that we're taught to not have the skills oh yeah like we're taught right. the actual opposite of them mm-hmm. this is something that um Hela, helena lucia said in a previous episode about being in school and having to ask permission to go to the bathroom mm-hmm. and sometimes being told no Right. 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 Like how we are, first of all, most, a lot of parents don't have enough emotional intelligence in themselves to be able to provide space for children to react emotionally in a, in a normal child way. Right. Because we have this assumption as parents, or I shouldn't say we, I'm not a parent, but a lot of parents have this assumption that they can reason with their children and emotions at that age are just not, well, at any age are often not logical. Like there's no reason happening here. It just needs to be made safe. So we learn first that our emotions are are not okay. And then we learn that our physical sensations are not okay. And then if you did a sport, you learned that your physical pain should be pushed through. So I think even beyond Mm -hmm. lacking a skill set, the skill set that we have is one more step. If we're looking at a continuum, it's one more step in the backwards direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's allowing yourself to not need to be perfect. Like to and not live up to those. I think it's allowing yourself to be aware that there are sensations at all. Mm-hmm. Like first Absolutely. before anything else. So we right. joke a lot on Fried the Burnout podcast about peeing when you have to pee. It's like a yes. it's a community joke, right? Yes. But the reason it's a community joke is because this is how I ask people to start listening to their signals. Hunger and thirst are so mixed in with our emotional worlds 
that those can be a little bit hard in the beginning. Like it's Mm -hmm. much easier to be like, do you have to poop? Go poop. Like, don't hold it. You know, Mm -hmm. like start with that. Right. Are you holding your pee so that you can finish this email? That doesn't matter. Like it's going to take you 42 seconds to pee and then you can come back and finish the email. Nothing will happen. So starting Mm -hmm. with those really, really basic signals and I always have people laugh. And I had somebody, I was on a, a guest on a podcast and she was like, that's not a thing. And two weeks later, she wrote me a message yes. on Instagram. She was like, holy shit, I hold totally. my pee all the time. I was like, I know. Yeah. yeah, especially depending on your industry, like if you're yeah. a teacher. Yes. Yeah. Oh God, teachers have such a hard time with that. Nurses, doctors. Right, right. right. Oh. So definitely listeners, you know, just start to clue in. What do I yeah. feel physically? What do I feel emotionally? But what I found with my clients is they just, that they would like to be able to do that. And they don't have a library to pull from to know what to label. What is this physical sensation? What is this emotional sensation? So I don't want listeners to feel like, well, I don't know what they're saying. So yeah, start with those real primitive body sensations and start to go from there. And also really start to notice what scripts you tell yourself in any way that you're disregarding yourself, whether it's not peeing when you need to, whether it's taking on another piece of a project when you know you don't have the capacity, whether it's um, picking up your children's toys when you know that if you just took an extra five minutes, they could support you and do it with you. Like, what is the thing that you're hearing subconsciously inside when you push yourself forward? So is it, it's fine, just suck it up? Is it what I'm feeling doesn't matter? There is something there and it's probably showing up again and again with the exact same phrasing and the exact same word. And and that's another huge opportunity that if we can remove this like boulder that's in the way, that then you can start to feel more safe to be with your body and to be present with your body and, you know, just to notice what's really happening for you. There's a little voice that may be saying, it's not safe for you to do that. And on the physical, plain, you know, about being able to acknowledge your own body's needs. I love to just give the example of menstruating teenagers, right? You're in school, you feel horrible, you have low energy, you have cramps, whatever you're experiencing, maybe you have a headache, and you're supposed to just be normal, sit up straight, learn, engage, laugh, smile, be cute, and pretend that you're not having this like massive shift in your body. Um, You're not allowed to have the emotional swings that go with it, which are actually beautiful, you know? And if you're an athlete, you're expected to be able to perform at the same level as you always performed the rest of the time. I was a competitive gymnast during those years. Yes. It didn't matter. Mm -hmm. No space for that. No space for that. You just keep tumbling, girl. Keep tumbling. Right. So if we kind of go along this like, zoom out culturally at where we are now. Um, Culturally, from a parenting perspective, there's a lot more knowledge and permission. You know, there's a lot less sort of, you're not going to have your physician say, yeah, cry it out. That's a good thing. Like we did in the 50s and 60s. Um, Honestly, in the 2000s. Oh, gosh. Ah, Yeah. People are still saying that. Well, people, but hopefully not their physicians. I don't know. Uh, Hopefully, but uh, (laughs) I don't. Medicine takes a long time to catch up. Yes. I mean, they're still talking about a cholesterol study that was fudged in the 50s. Right, right. 
Yeah. So but then for anyway. those of you listening, that's really not the ideal way to yeah. uh, teach your yeah. child emotional awareness, but um, <laughs> yeah. And then I think, you know, mindfulness is, has been very popular for, you know, we're going on, we're going on almost 20 years of that. And, you know, I think that, that there's enough reminders for people to really go, okay, this, this is not a trend. This is real. It's changed my life. It's it's what transforms my clients' lives and gives them those inner resources they can reach for inside themselves to help them change their lives and get out of the cycle um, of burnout, you know, and and really just to start to learn your own body's limit. How much is enough? How much stress is enough stress? I mean, stress is positive. It helps us get up, get going in the morning, focus, navigate. Yeah. Navigate busy traffic, think through things. Stress is good. It's there for a reason. And also like how much should we really tolerate and for how long? And then being curious, what does your body tell you about that? Yeah. You know, what is your body saying about how well you're coping, how resilient you are over time? So what I want to go back to, because when you told your initial story, I said, I have two things I want to get into. And and we got into one of them. And the other one, it was this idea that I had a, it was similar in my life. You had all this knowledge and you burnt out anyway. What was happening in that time leading up to the, I know you gave the basic story, but Mm -hmm. I don't really want the basic story. I want what was Mm -hmm. happening in your head during that time that allowed you to supersede the information that you knew already was important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was, um, there was a uh, like a vision, uh, at least with my like coaching agency, that I wasn't going to give it up, no matter how much else I had to take on. I wasn't backing down. I wasn't doing mm. that. And then there was just this real recognition of it's on me. You know, and that's certainly a, an inner script, like I shared before, like I have to figure it out by myself. I have to navigate this alone. That is definitely like an early childhood embedded script. And I think also just not having any resources of support. So I live in West Michigan on, you know, Lake Michigan, which is a beautiful place, but the closest family member is a 12 hour drive we really don't have any family that would just hop in the car or on a plane. They have their own health and life challenges going on. And so, you know, I have two small children and it's just a lot, you know? And so, but I didn't ask any of those people, (laughs) would you still get on the plane and come and come help? Um, I think when you're in that situation, it was literally managing a crisis that lasted longer than I thought. Mm. longer than I hoped, um, is, is you're too busy. You're too bogged down. There's too much stress to see more than a foot in front of you to think, you know, I'm, I'm problem solving. I'm in crisis management. I'm going to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And then it's going to be over. Yeah. Or, or then collapse in bed. Cause I'm tired. Yeah. Not thinking about like, this is not sustainable. Like we're not intended to live in crisis management as a lifestyle. That's a short-term response, you know? So yeah, I think it was just really like, I've got to do this by myself and, and it's all on me. That was just kind of what I kept coming back to. Yeah. That's a Um, script that I recognize. It's all on me. mm -hmm. 
That's definitely yeah. a script that I recognize. Mm-hmm. I've yeah. got, I have to be the one to figure this out because this is my responsibility because this is my portion of our lives or my, or whatever it happens to yes. be. But this, this is on me is a, 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 that's a big one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that whole experience for me was, you know, uh, looking back was a gift in some ways. I don't believe in the, you know, every hardship has a positive outcome. Ew, I, me I think either. that's yeah. Bullshit. Very toxic positivity. Yes, I agree. But for me, it was as I moved through the physical and emotional, like the physiologic healing of burnout, I realized that I needed trauma recovery too. And so, you know, it's been, you know, years of, of that journey, which has been so freeing to me in so many ways to shed, you know, the impacts of that. And um, so, I mean, that's a little, a little beyond, but no, no, it's good. I think it's important. And, and you brought up an important thing that I want to talk to everyone about, which is meaning making. Mm -hmm. And we have a, our culture is designed to find the silver lining like ASAP. It's like this terrible thing happened to you, but at least this other terrible thing didn't happen. You know, like it's mm-hmm. just, we have this, yes. uh, we're so uncomfortable with difficult emotion that we do it to ourselves and we do it to other people to try to avoid engaging with sorrow, despair, dread, difficulty, whatever it happens mm-hmm. to be. Right. So we love a really quick silver lining. We're like, wait, I have a mark. I have a silver marker. Let me just get, let me just sketch this out real quick. And I don't believe in doing that. And I do not believe I agree with you 100%. I don't believe that everything happens for a reason. I have known too many people that have had really shitty things happen to them to say that I think that that's a reasonable statement to make. I think it's rude. Mm -hmm. I just, I I think it's awful. Mm -hmm. And not but and there are very particular studies on resilience that tell us that when you make an effort to make meaning out of things that happened in your life, your brain literally becomes more resilient. So what does that mean? To me, that means you can choose after you've dealt with something, after, after, not right, not the day it happens, not the silver lining immediately, but after you've dealt with the thing that it comes up, if you have the wherewithal to look back on it and say, okay, what, what did I gain here? This is how we meaning make in a way that actually builds resilience instead of crushes us under the weight of our own self-expectation. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with this or no? Oh, I do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think as high achieving women, we have, uh, you know, we get like A plus pluses for the push map factor, you know, the dig deep and push through, got that. And also living in our heads. Yeah. Like from the neck up, living up here and like just tuning out the body for all the reasons that we've just said. Meanwhile, we only get attention for our bodies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the irony, the double bind. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that, I mean, emotions don't, emotions can be unfamiliar. Emotions can be scary because we weren't taught how to be with them and move through them. But emotions have a beginning, a middle and an end. And they always do have a beginning, middle, and an end. And being with your emotions is not going to be, you know, fatal. And so I think just (laughs) allowing that, and yes, that 
you can go through something very difficult, be with the experience that that brought to you and that, you know, it's something is going to integrate and transform. Something will be different about you on the other side, for sure. Yeah. And you can find those and, you know, point them out. And I think that that all is just awesome. Yeah. But back to like, not living just in our heads yeah. is the clients that I've had um, are all really diverse and varied, but the ones that kind of stand out to me in, in this conversation are the ones that came to me after they spent three days in the hospital because mm -hmm. the doctor mm -hmm. was trying to mm -hmm. figure out why they had hydroponin and seemed like they had a heart attack or yeah. why they had all the facial pain and a migraine that wouldn't go away. That was presenting as a stroke yeah. that took four days of tests. And then, you know, you know, multiple examples like this, but in the end, they were all discharged fine. Yeah. And, and confused and with no direction, clean bill of health, you're discharged, go back to your regular life. Take three some baby these, aspirin. Yes. <laughs> three of these people, when I asked, did anyone, the nurses, the doctor, your physician, when you follow up, the specialist that you saw ever ask you about your stress level, about your personal life or about your support? The universal answer was no. Yeah. And, you know, it's mind blowing. And for those, for those clients, the work of getting support with your burnout means that you're not just living in your head, that you can be in your body and that you can learn what those signs are that you really do need to pay attention to so that you're not getting back to that place or actually pushing yourself so hard that you do have those negative events or you know, this is a perfect recipe for the onset of an autoimmune condition to arise that surfaces, you know, in phases of our lives like this. 75% of my audience just went, I already have an autoimmune condition. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Well, let, let's not add more because they have friends. You yeah, know? they do They're... have friends. They they <laughs> like to overlap, don't they? Yes. Little assholes. Yes. Um, one of the things that hit me when you wrote to me originally was you said, you know, I'd like to talk about burnout recovery as health prevention. And I was like, I, that made immediate sense to me because the more you recover, the more you can take care of yourself, the more you know yourself, the better you can pay. You know, I was going, I went mm -hmm. through the whole thing. As soon as I read it, I went through the whole pathway, the whole mechanism right. immediately, but I hadn't thought about it like that before. I hadn't thought about those words being together, even mm. though I have told people a million times, you recover from burnout, you're more likely to have better health long-term because you know yourself better. Like I've said mm -hmm. those words, not as this sentence, burnout recovery as health prevention. What does that mean to you? Well, preventative medicine and, you know, all of our different facets of medicine are you know, early detection, you know, early detection, being preventative, being aware, being proactive, looking, being on the lookout. Um, you know, let's understand, for example, how bone density works and, you know, pursue some preventative medicine. If you have early, early signs of decreasing bone density so that you don't become osteoporotic, which is brittle bones or at risk of fracture, let's have preventative medicine. And so I feel like if there was some way culturally that we really could hashtag in burnout culture, that what we can do is back, back up the threshold where people aren't reaching out when they're like, Oh, I've had a crisis. I've had a health event. Potentially that is not reversible. 
But way earlier on, collectively, culturally, as women, we can still be high achievers and have body literacy, have resources and tools to know, oh, this is my inner boundary. I'm not going to push beyond this and feel okay with that, you know, feel okay with our identity about that, that that's not how we prove our worth, but somehow back it up because collectively women are burning out. I mean, like we are. And, you know, for those people who can't really navigate this or don't know that it's a thing or don't get the correct support, then they are headed for potentially bringing on themselves a stroke, a heart attack, cancer, or an autoimmune disease, or exacerbating anything that they've already experienced. And so, yeah, I mean, it's not just let's not feel stressed and have the effects of burnout. It's really like, let's get on this because your life is precious and we need you here and we don't want anything else to happen. Yeah. Um, Do you know the Dr. Kamara Jones cliff analogy? I don't know. About social it. social determinants of health? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the cliff analogy says, you know, kind of what you're saying now, like if people fall off a cliff, then the attention that they're getting is tertiary prevention because we're at actually right. treatment stage. Like we're at a stage right. where people actually need physical treatment. And this is the the stage of kind of burnout recovery that I work in most because I don't believe yeah. that most people are aware enough during the prevention mm-hmm. stage to actually do anything about it. So, nope. so that's problematic. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and then, so that's the, the, the tertiary net. And the secondary net is this idea that we could notice some symptoms and make some sort of intervention a little bit earlier, like maybe do some diet change, some meditation things like that. And then primary prevention would be sort of having stress management skills before some of these things start to happen. Maybe they work, maybe they don't, but they'll help you sort of pull, like stretch this whole process out a little bit longer. But then the, the most important part of this is not primary, secondary, or tertiary prevention. It is addressing social determinants of health so that people are further away from the edge of the cliff, like primary prevention, you're still at the cliff. Maybe there's a fence in front of you. Mm-hmm. Secondary, you've fallen off the cliff, but you've landed in a net. So like, you're sort of okay. Mm-hmm. Tertiary, you fell all the way down to the cliff and there's an ambulance waiting. Mm-hmm. But her, what she's saying, I just love this model so much. What she's saying is these social determinants of health push all of us collectively back away from the edge of the cliff. That doesn't mean that some people aren't going to climb over the fence and run and jump. Some people will, (laughs) but these social determinants of health which is things we learn in school, things we learn from our parents, having high ACE scores from childhood, having this complex PTSD, all sort of how can we address those things? And these are the things that are being addressed on an organizational level. This is the the burnout work that people are saying, well, the only thing that matters is, is burnout prevention in the workplace. We need to fix the organizational factors. And what I want people to think about is the fact that we have to deal with those organizational factors in these social determinants of health. We also have to have primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention because all of these pieces are critical to someone at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. I just, yeah. Love, I just love that picture. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think as far as like the, the work environment, the work setting, It's, I mean, it is from the top down. If you're working for someone else, a lot of the women I work with are setting the rules themselves 
and still yeah that are making the rules that are very unsustainable so it's really like what do you value what is your vision for your life like what is and this what do all you want about to yeah and what yes. do you want to model for the people working under you mm-hmm. right right absolutely and I mean I just had um because I still I'm doing some um like so I'm still doing some work for one of the health organizations locally here and and they were like we have this um this like you know, I don't know, get to know you. Like we have games and food and we would love for you to come. And I said, oh, okay, well, how do I bill for that? <laughs> you know, I don't know that I, I don't know that it fits in my schedule. I've got something else. I would have to move it. And, you know, and it just wasn't clear. And they're like, no, no, just, you know, everyone's kind of like taking PTO for it. And I said, oh, I am not available to do work-related activities on my personal time. Yeah. Period. And can you say that statement again so that people have it? I want you guys to listen to this statement and write it down somewhere so that you can repeat it word for word so you don't have to come up with your own script. One more time. Yeah. I'm not available for work related activities during my personal time because it would have been, I mean, I'm paying for childcare. I've got, I mean, there's just too many other things. So, and also that's an internal boundary that I've set right? Internal boundary. And when we have an internal boundary, we don't explain it. We don't need to justify it. We don't carry on. We point period, end of talking, send the email. That's it. Um, Because it's not negotiable and I don't need it to be approved. I'm not going to do it. So um, I think we have to, if we could come into our workplaces, whether we have our own businesses or we are employed, with the mindset that actually the culture changes when, as we change, that they are symbiotic, right? And that the more we stand up for ourselves and and understand our own limits and why this is so important and why we don't need somebody else from outside to give us permission for this, we claim it. And that's how the change happens. You guys, that's just as important. But I just did cheerleading poses in the back because I was so excited <laughs> listening to that statement. You know, when I, I have people say, well, yeah, but self-care and creating boundaries like isn't going to change the social determinants of of burnout and the organizational things. I'm like, you guys, it's not going to change the, the system. I'm like, we are the fucking system. Mm-hmm. The more we participate in it, the more it continues. Right. Uh, uh, Absolutely. The, you guys, we are right. the system. Right, right. When and this is changes. So for for listeners, whether you're in a uh, a job setting like you have an employer or just in your relationships at home, right? If there's not a problem to be fixed, nothing changes. And so if 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 something happens and you're asked to do something and your inner alarms, your body is saying, "Whoa, that feels violating of my boundary." my inner boundaries that I have set. And instead of vocalizing that and communicating that, we go, okay, right? Not only have we just violated ourselves, but there's no problem to be fixed. So nothing will ever change. We can complain about it all we want. I have been in employment where I complained for years and nothing changed because I was still solving the problems. But when I put all the balls down and let them go, oh, suddenly, there was a problem to be fixed and cultural change happened in the organization. 
It was yes. actually ma- mass exodus. But, you know, I think that that's how um, cultures change in, in organizations, though. Yeah. It's not yeah. until they lose too much that they start making changes because it's not financially beneficial for them to focus unless then this unless goes back to problem. unless mm-hmm. it's a big enough problem. So if you're feeling resentful about a problem that you're solving in your office, stop solving it. Stop solving it and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, this is so fun. I just love it. Yeah. So I guess homework for listeners, you know, see where you're pushing at a hundred percent. Like where are you showing up at a hundred percent? How can you decrease that to 80%? Right. What is your body telling you when your stress is high, you're pushing past your energy levels, you violated your inner boundary in some way, just start to tune in. Like when does your body say, hell no, no, this isn't right. This isn't right for me. This isn't what I want to be doing. And then listen for that little subtle little script of what you say back to it. It doesn't matter. I'm going to push through and do it anyways. Just suck it up. And just start to like pay attention to these little patterns that happen. And they may seem really small, but they are like keystones you know, to supporting the burnout pattern. And if you can take it out, the wall will come down slowly, but for sure. I love that analogy. And I want to throw out there too that, and this might sound a little counterintuitive coming from a burnout specialist, but there are times where you can choose to override the signal because you're making a solid choice about it, knowing This is my rule that if you're going to override a signal, you are now indebted to yourself and you have to pay yourself back in some way, shape or form, right? So there are some things that I do to, you know, keep the peace in with various family members and things like that, because the overall picture of that is part of my values and is important to me. So I know that if I'm going to overextend myself in a situation and I'm agreeing to do it ahead of time, even though my body is like, dude, I hate this. I plan a payback. So either I'm going to take a couple of days off for recovery, or I'm going to book a massage and a facial, or I'm going to like, I'm going to give myself something back. So if you are choosing to push through but you are not refueling yourself after, then you're putting yourself at like a double disadvantage. Like some, sometimes you are going to push through. Sometimes you're not going to pee when you need to pee because you're on a bus and you don't have access to a bathroom. Like there's going to be mm-hmm. moments in life where you're going to go beyond your boundaries a little bit. Being resilient means that you can do that sometimes and come back to center fairly quickly as long as you provide yourself with the fuel and resources needed to do so. You just can't do it all the time without paying yourself back. Mm -hmm. And then if it's okay, if I add really be mindful because I have, I'm thinking of some previous clients where what does paying themselves back mean? It, 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 we have adaptive coping right? When you've been in stress for a long period of time, maybe you're used to um, eating foods that actually contribute to the anxiety Mm. that you're having Mm. or having 
a bottle of wine to wind down at night because you quote unquote work so hard and earned it. Mm, right. And so good remember point. listeners that we're coming from the lens of preventative health, like preventative medicine here, that you're choosing the medicine that helps your system with the recovery and with the repair and, and, and being selective about what that is, like what your nervous system needs and, you know, I know that Kate's talked lots about all of that nature, quiet, destimulating, breathing, you know, whatever, whatever your go-to and easiest thing is, you know, just kind of differentiating. <laughs> the treat, yeah, the, the treat doesn't, uh, should, doesn't have to be harmful. If, yes. you cho- if you're choosing a harmful treat, then we're doing double whammy. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Well. That was big information, I think, and leaves people that this sort of idea of this inner script and finding the probably one, two, maybe five sentences that you are constantly repeating and having those be the, the foundational bricks in the wall of your burnout and sort of being able to allow them to break down by not participating in them, by not answering to them all the time, and then watching the fall, the, the wall come down, watching the wall fall, I think is a really powerful picture to leave people with. So the last thing that I'll ask you to do is to let us know where to find you, how to book you, all the things that you do, because I know that you said mm-hmm. you work one-on-one with clients, but are you also doing speaking events? Are you, do you have a mm-hmm. book? What's what else is going on out there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, um, you can find me at crystalfrizzy.com. You can find me on social platforms, TikTok and Instagram are my favorite at Dr. Crystal Frizzy. And, um, I'm actually writing a book. I'm starting on Monday. Yay! <laughs> yeah. I'm so excited about that. Um, but I, you know, I do have, um, one resource for listeners, which is if you're in those early, early stages, feeling like you're in, you know, burnout and more of a crisis stage, it's called stress and overwhelm relief game plan. And it's just some really simple, simple, simple things that you could implement. It's six steps and you could do each of them within five minutes. And so it just gives you like just a real easy sense so that you have a little space to breathe. And then as you can figure out your next step. Um, but if you want that, you can find that at on my homepage at crystalfrizzy.com. Yeah. Reach out with questions, feedback. We'd love to hear what resonated. Let Kate or I know and tag um, us on all the things. Yeah. We'd Ta- love to hear from you. Yeah. Share it, tag it, uh, tag us on all the things. And I don't ask for this often, but reviews for the podcast, especially if you're an (laughs) Apple listener, this is one of the best ways to help Fried grow and reach all the ears that it needs to reach. Apple really, really pays attention to how many reviews you're getting in what span of time. And that boosts us up the podcast charts. So if you love this episode, if you love most of our episodes or all of our episodes, please feel free to send us a review. All right, Fried fam. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>